0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: The thing I most enjoy about translation is the process of discovering that this is just another human like me who prays who had societal difficulties, who felt trapped by bad systems sometimes, who also had a direct experience of God. And that's why I love the process of translation because it translates me in the end. And it teaches me to listen better.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Carmen Acevedo Butcher. She is an author, teacher, poet, and award-winning translator of spiritual texts. Her dynamic work around the evolution of language and the necessity of just and inclusive language has garnered interest from various media, including the BBC and NPR's Morning Edition. A Carnegie Foundation Professor of the Year and Fulbright Senior Lecturer, Acevedo Butcher teaches at the University of California, Berkeley in the college writing programs. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, a revolutionary translation of Nicholas Herman, also known as Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. Professor Carmen Acevedo-Butcher, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you so much, David. It's a real joy to be here.
0: Well, I really enjoyed this book, and I'm really looking forward to introducing it to my listeners, It is a translation of this person who was known at one point in his life as Nicholas Herman and at another point in his life as Brother Lawrence. And I want to set the stage by taking those two personas in turn. If we could start out orienting our listeners by... Talking a little bit about before he was known as Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, who was Nicholas Herman, and what were some of the key points of his life journey as he was moving towards this transformation into this figure that wrote this book, The Practice of the Presence of God?
1: Wow, that is the best question ever, because that was exactly my entry point into the translation and the reason that I translated it. I was like, who is as they would have said it in the French, right? Because I always tried to inhabit that, Nicolas Hermand. So I was always trying to figure out how did his world sound and how did it feel for him? One of the things that I discovered is that Nick, as I think of him, was part of the 98% of the unprivileged of the 17th century in France. And in fact, he wasn't even born in France. He was born in Lorraine, which was a territory of France. So, he was really, to put it in the terms of his day, he was a quote unquote nobody. Now, this is what makes him so relatable to me. My students are always saying, I'll ask them something like, I'll say, why do you like that meme? And they're always like saying, it's so relatable. And so I, I held on to that. Nicholas Herman is absolutely relatable. He was someone who had no chance for formal education. He was raised in poverty. He would not have had any kind of possibility for ambition or dreaming. And so when he was about 18 or so, he decided to join the military. And I can't tell you how many students I have had who have said to me, I had a difficult background, and I'm looking for some stability and education, so I'm going to join the military. And I think also there was the fact that Lorraine was having battles for its sovereignty, and he may have joined also to defend his homeland. So here's where his life starts bifurcating just a little bit. When he was 18 also, he had a, what we would call, I guess, a mystical experience he was standing in front of a tree in the wintertime, so right about now, we can think of it, and it, ha- it was a deciduous tree, had no leaves on it, and he had this feeling of the very nearness of God, and that he said he had this inner conviction that soon the green leaves would appear, then the flowers, and then life starts again. And he said he felt such a love of God that it never left him, it never increased, is the way he puts it, meaning it was so strong that it was a permanent part of his life. But that didn't immediately make any difference in his life. And this is also only one of the times we think it could have happened to him many other times as it happens in our lives when we get this tug of feeling, like when we're pouring the sugar and we hear the sound of the sugar. So I don't want to make too big of a point of this moment, but this definitely was a moment for him. So he joins the military and he is in the 30 Years' War. Now, this for me is something that I spent a lot of time on as a translator, investigating the 30 Years' War, and it was hell. I don't know that you can say anything else about any war, but this particular war historians like Jeffrey Parker say it's like one of the first instances where they start talking about modern warfare. It had... People, marauders, it had people hired to fight in the war, and it started in religion. It's just got everything Catholics, Protestants fighting, and it was all across Central Europe. It was known for having heinous crimes against citizens, and we do not know. I've read accounts, firsthand accounts, and it's really, and I've seen the art, quote unquote, the art of the period from the war. It's horrifying. And we don't know. Probably will never know, David, what he saw, what he may have done. But we do know that he felt absolute, quote, unquote, horror thinking back on the days of his youth. And he was also a prisoner. He was captured and was a prisoner of war. And he was accused of being a spy. And we're told by his friend Joseph of Beaufort, the priest, who was about 20 years his younger, that he was so brave in this encounter as a prisoner of war that they didn't kill him and he eventually was let go. He was a brave person. But there's something about the experience of the war and the fact that, as Martin Laird so well said, he didn't count in his society. Didn't count.
0: Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carmen Acevedo Butcher. We're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, a revolutionary translation of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. So what I'm hearing you saying is that if we look at this man Nicholas Ehrman, before he becomes brother Lawrence he really functions as kind of an everyman or an every person he's as you say part of the 99% he's he's one of the common people he really is uh he's just he's just a face in the crowd if i'm hearing you correctly
1: This is what i love about brother Lawrence he appeals to the part of All of us who really care about the way society fails anyone on the margins, there shouldn't be margins. And he is someone who shows us how important each person is, because then he tried being a valet, but oh, I left out the most important part, David. During the war, he was injured in his leg during a campaign. And ever after that, he limped and was in pain and disabled. So his perspective, for me, he really sums up with the way we have long COVID. My husband has long COVID. The way we have long COVID now, I grew up with dyslexia and it was undiagnosed. I see so many more students um, in my experience who come to me saying I can't read or I have a certain kind of learning disability. So many more of my students are struggling with mental illness. No stigma about it, just this is who I am and I'm struggling. And Brother Lawrence represents all of these. He had severe anxiety. I've struggled with severe anxiety. I probably will be 85 and meditating and still struggling with anxiety. He had severe anxiety. He was disabled. He had no privilege. He had no education. He also suffered in a society that the church endorsed. I mean, he presses every button. He represents something we all need, I need to look at. He represents something we all need to look at and see how God meets him in the middle of that. And he was authentic. I struggle with this. I often have... If I say something in class, sometimes it's me really speaking my mind. Usually I'm just focused on the student. But one time I said something in class and a student said, you do you, you do you. And I was like, what? I love that. Brother Lawrence did him. He was just Brother Lawrence. He was not Francois Fenelon, who was like an archbishop and one of the people who admired him. But he was just he was just a nobody. Nobody's a nobody. You understand? I'm not saying I think he was a nobody, but I'm just saying he is who we need to pay attention to these days.
0: Well, this is one of the dynamics. And as we continue, we're going to get into the Brother Lawrence persona as well. But I want to stick right now with Nicholas Herman and some of the things that you said. So first of all, I, I love that you said, I really wanted to dive into the world that Nicholas Hermann was living in. Because that brings up a wonderful sort of question about translation that I oftentimes have a chance to get into with my guests. And that is, I think we have a misconception that translation is simply look at the words on the page and figure out what words in our current language are the best fit. But you're trying to recreate the entire context, the world of thought around this persona, Brother Lawrence. And I just want to take a moment before we go to break to ask you about that process. Tell me about what it is to recreate an alien world, because you've said at at various points how much Brother Lawrence speaks to our present time, but there's also got to be a way in which Brother Lawrence's time was completely alien to the time that we live in now. And I want to talk about that friction. Tell me a little bit about that, that tension between he's speaking to our time, he's alien to our time.
1: Wow, that is so well put. That friction, that tension is where the translator lives. That liminal space where you have, it's almost like being on the Greenwich Mean Time where you have one foot on one side and one of the other. And you just have to be, have that negative capability that Keats talks about of not reaching for either one, but inhabiting in that space. And also the unknown, you have to be willing to say, I'll never know, but darn it, I'm going to get as close as I can too. So for me, what it means is the ultimate act of empathy. It is me listening to Brother Lawrence. So the first thing that probably sounds very mundane is that the first thing I do when I turn up to trans, first of all, there has to be a tug. Like I, I wouldn't say that I thought about this until Brother Lawrence happened, but then I thought about the cloud of unknowing that I translated. There was a tug. So there's a tug and then you cannot deny the tug because it'll keep tugging. (laughs) It's not like I'm really sensitive to, oh, I'm getting a tug. It's more like that's that tug again. Damn, I need to look into that. So, and it just keeps tugging and it's a gentle, sweet tug. I'm not saying it's a violent tug, a very sweet, gentle tug, but it's very, it's like that cat paw in the morning and they want you to wake up and they put the little paw on your face. And then the next time it's a little bit more, and then the next time it's a little bit more. So there's that tug. The second thing is when I would get up in the morning, I would say a little prayer. I'm a person of very many small prayers. It's one reason I love Brother Lawrence. And I would just be like, help me know what to do. And sometimes it gets even bigger. It's what do I do with this passage? What do I do with it? It's, and then when you look at the other people who translate, you're like, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> but I want to translate everything.
0: Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carmen Acevedo Butcher. We're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, Nicholas Erman, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen, I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Carmen Acevedo Butcher. We're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, which is a revolutionary translation of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection's book, Practice of the Presence of God. So right before the break, You were talking about the process of translation, and in particular, this kind of dance between our world and the kind of alien world of the text, where we're trying to pull something out from the text and the past that the text inhabits and bring it to our present. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your translation process.
1: So the first thing I try to recreate is a movie, an embodied movie in my mind, of Brother Lawrence's world. That means I get to be a nerd. I know, David, you relate to this. So I go and I find, thanks to the internet, first of all, his first editions. So thank you to the National Library of France. They have his first editions. I mean, you can see the stamps and the beautiful, I mean, it's just, it's just, and I even tell readers how to find it. You just go Google this and you can look at them too. You can read Brother Lawrence in the original. Like I can almost touch it. This was during the pandemic, but if you could see it in person, that would be good too. But seeing it digitally is the next best thing. So I could almost smell it. So you want to see the first editions. The next thing is, I really want to know what his world was like. So that means studying the church then and the man-made, you know, first, second and third estate religion, the 98% of, and then the nobility. And then it means also studying the fact that they had climate crises, the little ice age. There were times when no green came onto the trees and they were starving. And Louis 14th I mean, they had the authoritarian king where a lot of people were hungry because of the famines, because of the climate crisis. And Louis XIV, He was also not a tall guy, but it wasn't for lack of food. There was an entire swath of people in his kingdom who didn't get enough food and they were shorter. There are people, Jeffrey Parker cites statistics and and just looking around and seeing, to be honest with you, one of the things I thought was 98%, is that where we're heading? I mean, I don't want to be negative, but like I was thinking this 98% of total I don't know, it just affected me so profoundly because when you get into Brother Lawrence's actual French words, you can feel his pain. So that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. The word, you study the history, I I read all I can and you find these other free sources like what was printing like back then? What was writing like? And you can find these books from the 1700s and the 1800s free online. I mean, we don't talk about the internet in this way, but the internet has some real treasures. And you can study how the printing happened then. And you can enter into that. So I try to make a movie in my mind as if I'm walking in Brother Lawrence's day. And then you take the words. And the only reason that I translated this is I could eat his words and I felt it was a healthy meal. It's like hugging somebody. When you get into their words, I mean, I know you know this from teaching and stuff. When you get into somebody's words, you learn so much about them, whether they want you to or not. And Brother Lawrence's words are filled with genuine pain that he experienced and the fact that he found calmness in meditation. So one of the things I do is I become friends with the great dictionaries of the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s, all free online. And I not only look, up. you're very right, we don't just carry the water of looking up the words and then pouring it into a new pail. You actually read, I go and read other French books and see how the words that Brother Lawrence used are used in these similar books. And then I'm a fan of the Oxford English Dictionary because the funny thing about Christianity is across the world, the Western world, if a word, some theological term is used in France in this language, then if you look it up in the OED, you can find very similar resonances. And so by digging through, and then you read also secular books in French and find out what is the world he's talking about here. And you see how they use words. And so in other words, it's like this puzzle. Like you start with his name. I want to hear his name. I want to know how people called him. And then you go into his words. And I know here Lahiri says that translation is the most intimate form of reading, I totally agree, but one of the things I will say is that it is like Lexio Divina translation because you spend such time in these words where somebody themselves spent time in scripture and other books that are really thoughtful about meditation and Christ and what does this mean, and you just end up steeping in the words and you listen
0: so I really appreciate you taking a moment to explain in more detail how all of this worked for you. I used as a kind of throwaway word a few moments ago, this concept of the dance, but the more that I hear you describe it, it really does sound like it. You were dancing with this text. So
1: the thing is, it does take some thought and some decision making, but I would be remiss if I didn't say what I mostly end up doing is listening and admitting what I don't know and trying to find the words that best approximate. And I revise so much. So like I did the initial translation in three months. I didn't even tell my editor, Lil, that I was doing it because I wasn't sure if the theology would be healthy enough, if I could be close enough to it to do it. Once I get in, but I started with Brother Lawrence's own words. I loved him so much. I was like, I want to spend time with him. He brought calmness to my anxious soul. That's all I know how to put it. And then I spent a year and a half revising those three months and changing my mind. And the other thing is I had like two to 300 page notes document where I put in, you translated this way because of this, and then would have a date. And then i come back to it and go, but on this day, you changed to. And so literally, you know how when people, my mother's very good at doing embroidery, And on the top of it, you have this beautiful pattern. The people who are really good at it. When you turn it underneath, you can kind of, it's more neat. But underneath, it's always messy. So if you could see my notes document, you'd be like, yeah, there's a process. So, and then you just hope that as one of my friends says, it's still enough and it holds water. But then you also think, maybe it'll sell enough to have another (laughs) addition. And maybe I can... Make this change, you know, but in general, you get it still enough to where you think I'm at peace with that. But you're right. There is a, if there's no, I will say this, if there's no tension there and no frisson of questioning and that liminal space of, you have to be comfortable with not knowing at the same time that you try to learn so much, but you have to mostly be comfortable with not knowing. And that makes it sound like I don't know anything about the period. I don't want to give that impression either because you really are learning a lot about it, but you have to really stay open to I miss something.
0: I really appreciate you talking about your translation process, and I wonder if you could also talk about what it was like to wade into a kind of landscape where others had already been at work before, like you are not the first person to have come at these texts. What was it like to navigate that aspect of the translation process?
1: I was very thankful for all these, I must tell you, men who translated it before. I did find there was one uh, religious woman. I think her name is Mary David, but she did translate it, but it was very much translated like all the men had. I don't mean that against her, but I am really grateful for all the company of the past translators. But. One of the things I did notice in translating it is that the Brother Lawrence I was encountering didn't match up with the translations from before because they were all binary. And Brother Lawrence is a mystic. And mystics don't travel, or how can I say this? Because as soon as I say don't, we enter the binary. Mystics seem to be beyond this or that. And Brother Lawrence doesn't go with sinner, saint, bad, good. He's very much one of us today. I mean, most of my students wouldn't call themselves mystics, but they're not binary thinkers in most ways. Do you know, does that strike a bell with you, if you know what I'm saying? So one of the things I I hoped to do was to bring this mystical, real person, Brother Lawrence, because, you know, in the past, he was often presented as a praying friar in a kitchen. And isn't he smart and not educated? But he hated kitchen work. He hated it. He says he had, in the French, it's aversion. He had an aversion to it. That means did not like it. Now, I think about this. He was limping and in pain his whole life. I've had carpal tunnel before. When I went to bed at night, this was years ago, and I was about to, I was just pregnant, and I was remember thinking, how I'm going to hold my baby. And at night, I would think, I want to take my arms off and get into bed because then I wouldn't hurt maybe. Like, you know, you have a Barbie doll moment where you think if I could just twist my arms off and get in bed and massage help me and meditation help me. But I think about Brother Lawrence in the kitchen. Did he ever want to take his legs off and just go to bed? And there he is limping around the kitchen. They didn't have this notion of disability that even we have today. And he was in the kitchen for four decades and he learned to do it with love. Wow. It's kind of like me and email. I really am trying to love email. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm grateful to have a job and people who want to email me like you and others. But I get nervous around email and I'm learning to love it. So Brother Lawrence was very real and he learned to pray as he washed dishes. This is something that that I need. But to be honest with you, I actually want to say the thing I most enjoy about translation is the process of discovering that this is just another human like me who prays, who had societal difficulties, who felt trapped by bad systems sometimes, who also had a direct experience of God, that this is not unusual to have a direct experience of God. You don't have to be not stressed. You don't have to be, you don't have to have it together. You don't have to be calm. And, you know, you can just be a human being and you can be connected to others. I I think we just need more of this breaking out of, and that's why I love the process of translation, because it translates me in the end, and it teaches me to listen better.
0: Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carmen Acevedo Butcher. We're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, a revolutionary translation of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. Now, I want to ask a little bit about the structure of this text that you were working with, Practice of the Presence, because it is a series of almost onion-interlocking pieces, because you've got a sort of set of maxims that starts everything out. You have a series of letters, and then you have an extensive portion that's also from this contemporary of Brother Lawrence, Joseph of Beaufort. And so I'm interested how you see this book hanging together. To what extent is Brother Lawrence a person writing to us, and to what extent is Brother Lawrence a character that is being presented to us by people like Joseph of Beaufort?
1: Wow, that is a good question. So the book was only published—Brother Lawrence didn't publish anything in his lifetime, and it was only published because after he died, some friends said, hey, do we have more of his letters? We'd like to read them, because in fact, he just was trying to live a hidden life. He very much was humble. But so his friend, as you said, Joseph, started to publish some of his works, and that's how it all got started. Now, one of the good things is that how much of this is a character. I really think Joseph pretty much is their friends, Joseph and Brother Lawrence, because they have similar concerns in life. Joseph of Beaufort helped the poor. I mean, there are records that show he was right in there with Brother Lawrence, even though he had a bit more of a privileged life. But there is the element of Joseph is a churchman and more of a theologian and very much more an administrator. And Brother Lawrence is just an uneducated friar who cooked. So there is that gap. Brother Lawrence, in fact, tells Joseph, Joseph said, I'd like to come see you and have conversations, because that's another one of the pieces is Joseph reporting on their conversations and quoting and such. And Brother Lawrence tells him, if you are sincere in wanting to really learn, then you can come anytime. But if not, just don't bother. I I love that. But you're right that there is this element of who really is Brother Lawrence? And does he get lost in the fact that part of his book is other people writing about him? So I think there is one of the reasons the book has lasted is there's a tension between that in the book. And it's one reason that I put his maxims that you talked about and his letters at the beginning, because there's no way to center his voice. We have to hear from him first. But in the past, people have said he doesn't have the language of a churchman, But he does like one one critic or one scholar says he doesn't use words like dissipate, whereas Joseph does. But Brother Lawrence does use words like dissipate. He was smart. We have this weird separation of educated and not educated people that I don't have. My mother does not have a college education. She's brilliant. I've never understood this because I've heard people with degrees spout nonsense I've known people with third grade education to be brilliant. I don't understand why we have this thing. So Brother Lawrence was brilliant. Can we just say that? And so part of the uneducated thing is put onto him by, as he he has made a character by some people in his society, yes. But no, he is definitely, I, I definitely think there is that character aspect, but, if, but that's one reason I put his voice at the beginning. Well,
0: and another piece of this is As we're looking at the letters of Brother Lawrence, Brother Lawrence will oftentimes write to my dear mother or to my dear brother. And so we don't actually know the recipients by name oftentimes. So in addition to thinking about Brother Lawrence as a character or a writer, we also have to or you had to go in and reconstruct who the recipients of these letters were. And that's one of the things that I thought was so strong and useful about your translation of Practice of the Presence is you're showing us the methods and the pieces that you're using to figure out who were these people and what were their circumstances as well. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that process.
1: Well, so one of the things that really helped me was looking at the critical edition by DeMeester, Conrad De Meister, and but also getting into some of the historical documents to look and see when was he writing and who are these people. So it was just a lot of history legwork in that respect. But I think one of the main things that we have to accept about the practice of the presence is that we really won't know some of the dates of some of the letters. We can guess and make the best guess possible, and they kind of do make an arc. But at the same time, there are some things we really won't know. And in fact, I might as well say, the manuscript itself is a mess in some ways, because it was published, the first edition at one point had part one, and then it was published a few years later, part two was published. And so it's a bit of a mess. But here's why I like that. It is a book that came out of friendship between Joseph And people wanting to hear more from Brother Lawrence, this friar. The fact that his society that was so, this is, he was part of the 98%. The fact that his society knew to honor him gives me great hope. That's one of the things I'm working against is trying not to present him as a character. And I think from my own position growing up in the South as a brown woman, I really relate to him. And so... I think that's part of what I was aiming for, is to center his humanity. But you're right. I mean, there is a lot of—it's a very complex book. It's very complex.
0: Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carmen Acevedo Butcher. We're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, a revolutionary translation of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. So— As we're thinking about this work, and we're thinking about the layers, so we've got a language that is written by a person and preserved by other people not intended to be published. As we're thinking about the ways in which various translators and even contemporaries of Brother Lawrence at the time were putting expectations of identity on Brother Lawrence, he couldn't have used that language because he was on the fringe of the fringe or what have you. One of the things I really loved about your translation of Practice of the Presence is your insistence on going back and reimagining afresh this language and these theological ideas. And I want to ask about some of your translational choices. And the one in particular that jumped out to me was, as you translate Brother Lawrence talking about the person of God— You make a very particular pronoun choice, and I I would love for you to talk to my listeners about the rationale. What was the choice, and why did you follow Brother Lawrence as you rediscovered this option within the text?
1: So, Brother Lawrence is a product of his time. He also is very much, as a mystic, somebody who is a Trinitarian in a lived way. He thought of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God the Father— in everything he did. I mean, I can't emphasize what that meant. And I'm the kind of person that I take pages of my translation to the marsh and I read them aloud and listen to the rhythm and listen just to the words and what's trying to be said. And I look up on my phone occasionally, what was it, what was it in the French? So everything about this is embodied. I'm thinking about my students. And Brother Lawrence uses T for God, but here's the deal. This was not an intellectual choice, what you're talking about. Let me go at it backwards. So when I met with my editor, I said to my editor, I've translated it, and I would really like to do this book for Broadleaf. I said, the only disappointment I had was that I couldn't not use him, he, him for God. And that's what Brother Lawrence uses. And she didn't say much. But here's the thing. LGBTQ community, my students who identify as they, so many friends who do isn't that Trinitarian? And Anne Hunt talks about this, the theologian. She says, in Christianity, the Trinity is supposed to be an important part that we live, but we've gotten away from it. So I just let go of it. You know, it's the middle of the pandemic. I'm teaching full time at Berkeley Online, a public speaking class. But the next morning, I came at 4 a.m. to the desk to translate. And there was they. I hadn't even thought about it at that point. David, I even tried to translate without pronouns. You can't do that. In English, I mean, I used to do linguistics. I know you can't translate without pronouns. I tried to use God, 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 love, love. It, and but you're still trying to keep it to the original, to all of this while you're still trying to keep it accurate and to the original text. Like you're trying not to get far away from the original text. Like every time you make a move, you're like, it moves me away from the text, but I got up the next morning and I can almost picture it like a neon sign saying they at my desk. And I was like, they, and I didn't even have a question. I was like, they, how does this work? And then my next one, was like, how, how do I do that? So it wasn't like I, I had this intellectual powwow with myself and made this choice, but I will have to say, you know, I read this article once. that said, why couldn't Jesus have been Jesus Cena? I really just, I, as a woman, I have felt left out of Christianity forever. And when I hear about God, the father, even from the kindest people, like like people who are lovely people, I'm always like, well, what about people who have fathers that were painful? Or what about people who just want to talk about God, the mother or God beyond all that? You know, we really need to mix it up. <laughs> And what about my students? I'm thinking about my students. If they read this book, are they going to feel seen? No. If it's about God, this is a mystical text with relevance for everyone. I mean, Aldous Huxley said everybody loves this text. Why is that? It's because even with the binary that's been foisted onto it in translations over the years, the mysticism just shines through. So... It wasn't really even, I have to tell you, it wasn't a choice that I use they, themselves, and theirs for God. But the next thing is, you can't just do a search and replace. So then I thought, how am I going to do this? But then I thought, wait, this is an opportunity. It's like crisis in Chinese, you know, it's like opportunity. And then I thought, for people I know who are older, I could use they, themselves, and theirs to teach them how to use they, themselves, and theirs for God and others. But then you run into the thing, Where sometimes in the text, Brother Lawrence says, and sometimes God will let you, will just let the suffering kind of, I mean, sometimes there's a weight. You just have to kind of live with the suffering. And I didn't want to use they sometimes where it made it sound like the they was a punitive God. I was trying to soften all that. So I had to be careful. How do I use they? I mean, you know, you really have to enter into it. But yeah, I think they chose it. I think God chose this they. And then... I kind of held my breath
0: <laughs>
1: because it wasn't a political choice. It wasn't a linguistic choice as much as it was just there one morning. And then I kind of held my breath. And what happened next was astonishing. All these people went, I like that. But they went, one one very good friend, who I won't name who it is, but I'm sure you know, them, said, I wasn't sure if I liked that at first, but then I was like, yes, that to me is valid. I will say there was one person who wrote and said they thought it was polytheistic. And I was like, when was the Trinity polytheistic? But I just let that go because, you know, like they say, you're not a jar of Nutella. You can't please everybody.
0: I love that answer. And it actually bridges to the other translational choice that I wanted to ask you about, because you against other translations, and maybe against is too strong of a word, but maybe in in contradiction to what other translators have chosen to do, you really recovered a central word for Brother Lawrence, and that word is kindness. And I wonder if you would talk to my audience about how re-centering kindness in Brother Lawrence's language helps to change the understanding and moves us away from some of the binaries that you were talking about earlier in the conversation.
1: I'm glad you asked that because that was another given. I was kept running across Bonte, which can be goodness. But the thing about goodness has been used in Christianity for forever because I did a study of goodness while I was translating this. You know, you start with Augustine and even before. But goodness is kind of like when a student gives you something to read and you say, that's interesting. And you're actually trying to think, what do I, I mean? Interesting is kind of like chicken. It takes on whatever spices you put onto it. Goodness is kind of a tricky theological word. Goodness can mean pretty much almost anything the theologian wants it to, but kindness is different. And Brother Lawrence's God is kind. So Brother Lawrence's God is kind of God who gives you nature. I was just thinking about that, nature. Like just going out and seeing a cloud. If somebody said to me, hey, for your birthday, I got you a cloud. I'd be like, oh my gosh. Brother Lawrence said, he walked out in nature and was awestruck. That's kindness. So that's a kind God. And so what I did was, and it was very much related to this notion in Christianity of perfection. I made it all about, and that's what Brother Lawrence says. I'm just following his lead. Wherever there was bonte, there was kindness. I brought in kindness because Brother Lawrence's God is kind. The other thing is it leads to how A lot of the translations talk about sinner versus saint. Brother Lawrence uses sinner once. And in French, the word for sinner is pécheur, which has as its etymological root, foot. It means to stumble. I mean, this isn't news to Christianity. We just don't emphasize it, right? It's like Juliana Norwich, what makes her so great? She emphasizes God's mercy and kindness, duh. I mean, it's not really not there it's just not emphasized. So Brother Lawrence, the limping cook and sandal repairer talks about how we stumble and harm others. So as I'm translating him, he uses the word tumble. In French, it's tombere. And that's where we get our word tumble from. He says, sometimes we tumble, stumble, and we harm others. I think there was something very basic either that he saw or that he did that he really had to deal with in his life. And who doesn't have that? I just want to ask, who doesn't need grace? I really wonder who hasn't had that experience of really needing forgiveness and really needing to change and be better, do different. And so he talks about perfection, but it has nothing to do with binaries. It has to do with the part being thoroughly and the fact part being the most common verb in the French language for to do. And all perfection to Brother Lawrence Net was do it again. Do it again. Do it again. So he says, we will become the wisest lovers. We, what we're trying to do is become the wisest lovers to become complete. It's very good psychology for today to become whole. He's very much talking about the true self. He really is. I'm not making this up. I'm just bringing it to the fore in the translation. So I talk about stumbling and harming others and perfection as becoming whole and trying again. But yes, it all leads back to the foundation. And here's the other thing. The kindness, my use of kindness relates to his use of love. He uses love more often. I counted it up. I mean, I have sheets where I counted words. I mean, you know, when you have a digital version, you can go through and be the nerd and see how many times it appears, how many times Joseph used it, how many times Brother Lawrence used it. He uses the word love more than Juliana Norwich. That's hopeful, right? Don't we need that?
0: Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carmen Acevedo-Butcher. We're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, a revolutionary translation of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Carmen Acevedo Butcher. We're talking about her recent book, Practice of the Presence, which is a revolutionary new translation of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection's work, which is also known as Practice of the Presence, or sometimes you may have heard it as Practice of the Presence of God. You said something a moment ago that I want to circle back to. You mentioned that sin oftentimes gets read in a certain way in the Christian theological tradition, but that Brother Lawrence used a very specific phrasing for sin, and it was more like stumbling. And then you made this connection that I I want to dig into because you said, and think about this, this was the cook who had a leg injury, who was literally limping around the kitchen for 40 years, talking about sin being like stumbling. And when you said that, that brought me back to a point that you make early in your translator's notes and introduction to practice of the presence, where you say that for Brother Lawrence, the spiritual and the physical are not binary opposites. They're not far away from one another. The spiritual and the physical are woven together. But I wonder if for my listeners, you would say a little bit more about that. How is embodied spirituality working for Brother Lawrence here in this work, the practice of the presence?
1: That is it. That is the point. It's very like Hildegard. So for Brother Lawrence, his limping physically and his limping of soul, his horror that he saw in his youth that he felt he needed to have forgiveness for. All of that kind of limping and the fact that the healing would come through the fact he had this tree mystical experience. The sap that runs into the tree is also the spirit of God. It's Hildegard's Veriditas, where the grain that runs in the tree is also the Holy Spirit, which runs in my soul. So there's no, none of this cutting and having body and soul, is all one. This really appeals to me because this is, I think is our experience as children. We don't really split things up. And later when we split them up is when we start feeling separate from others, separate from our own selves, our true selves, separate from God. And Brother Lawrence does none of that. He sees it all of a piece. So in the end, I think he saw cooking as part of serving himself and others and God. He sees everything. Reading his book is easier to understand this perspective than talking about it because he it really is in his words how he approaches it. But it is very embodied. He practiced this returning to God in his thoughts all the time, either with praise or with an ask for help. And I do this too. And when I forget, when I come back, God's like, oh, yeah, you're back. It's never, where were you on Wednesday night? Where were you on Sunday morning? Is He very much experienced this direct experience of God through washing dishes, through, he, if it were he were here today, it'd be through answering email. He just experienced, he took in the pain as also part of his experience. This is one of the hardest parts to understand about Brother Lawrence is how it helped him handle his pain That point of view.
0: Well, and I I now want to ask the same question, but from a different direction, because in letter 13 of your translation of Practice of the Presence, the letter begins Dear Mother, if we were truly familiar with the exercise of the presence of God, all the illnesses of our bodies would become easy to bear. And I want to dig into that for a moment, because I think to contemporary ears, we might hear this. As something like the prosperity gospel. In other words, if you just have enough faith, then you'll get up out of that wheelchair and walk. Now, I've had enough of a conversation with you now to know that you don't think that's what Brother Lawrence is saying, but I wonder to someone who would say, aha, see, you just have to get your faith better, and then all your suffering goes away. How would you reread this with that person and say, no, actually, you should interpret it maybe more in this direction? What would you say to a person who wants to say, just have enough faith and all of your psychological problems, your depression, even your illnesses will go away?
1: Yes, he definitely does not live that or say that. There's something about, so Joseph of Beaufort says, the more he practiced the presence himself, the more he understood Brother Lawrence. So what I would say to that person is, try the practice. (laughs) See what I did there? So what I'm saying is, this is a very hard question to answer with our intellects. But I can tell you from experience that Brother Lawrence does not mean any of that BS of bypassing or the prosperity gospel or anything like that. He's the furthest from the prosperity gospel of anybody I can imagine. But... I would take Joseph's advice. Joseph said, the more I practice the presence, the more Brother Lawrence makes sense. And I think with Brother Lawrence, he developed what a radical notion. If we are Christians, doesn't it mean that we can have a direct experience of God? But what does that mean? Brother Lawrence had such a friendship with God. God cared about him. He was like a Zen master in the sense of training his mind. I have friends who are lamas and Zen Buddhists, and they're like, we love Brother Lawrence. So I would ask that person, do you feel like your mind is in a trained position? So I would say, maybe try some meditation and then let's talk again. Really, that's why I would be like, because for me, that is an unkind way of looking at things. So this thing of saying, oh, if you just have more faith, That's the kind of thing that is said by just a lack of maturity. Like, it's just not kind. Who would say that? Really? Because one of my dearest friends was diagnosed recently with breast cancer. What do I think about that? I think we live with toxins in our environment. I think I don't understand things. Will I pray, return to God with it? Yes. So the thing you just brought up is, I mean, theodicy, I don't get. I know the term for it. I can even tell you that homology of theodicy doesn't help me one bit with my best friend who has breast cancer. So I do know the things that I wouldn't say, oh, God will be with you and you just need to have more faith. I definitely wouldn't say that. And Brother Lawrence wouldn't say that either. What I don't understand about Brother Lawrence and what I want to practice the presence until I'm really old and maybe I'll know more, is that he found peace in the middle of 40, 50 years of excruciating pain and, and limping and whatever post-traumatic stress disorder difficulties he had and anxiety. He found peace and the proof is in his words and in his life, how people responded to it, what they say about him. All I know is that By practicing returning to love and having a conversation with love and trying to dedicate everything he did to love, he found a way through his pain. How does that work, David? I don't know. Well, I don't.
0: You've given us glimpses of the answer to this question throughout our conversation, but now I want to ask it directly. As you have been sitting with this work from Brother Lawrence and as you have been translating and revising and praying with and learning from Practice of the Presence, how have you been changed? What sort of learnings, what new spiritual wisdom, what possibilities have been opened to you as a result of being a part of this project?
1: The first thing is I've become more self-compassionate. I grew up with a religion that was like a policeman in my head. And one day the rule was this, and you could be arrested for this. And the next day the rule was that, and you could be arrested for that. But the main thing was, there was a lot of self-loathing in the religion that I grew up with. So more self-compassion, more calmness. Brother Lawrence, he's so calm. And his spirit, it really is weird, okay? His spirit of calmness comes through his words and down through the centuries. I can't explain it, but I can tell you it's real. So more calmness, also more willingness to try new things because I suffered from chronic depression for years and years and years. I I think I'm actually a disabled person and I've never been able to admit it because I think I would stop functioning if I did back in the day. Brother Lawrence has helped me to see that there is dignity in, in being disabled. He has helped me to see that I matter. I mean, I'm very good at telling students they matter. I'm very good at telling students, honor your voice. Uh, But I realized one day, girl, you're talking to yourself. (laughs) So one of the things that I found with Brother Lawrence is I can turn to God in everything. I don't have to have it together. I don't. I can be confused. I can be stressed and anxious. I can have physical issues, but I can find a way to have self-compassion and to love others and to try to bring others in from the margins. And then maybe in some way, my students will go out there and change the margins that there won't be them anymore. I don't think I'm the one to do it, but maybe my students will. So what I've learned from Brother Lawrence, what has it changed about me, has made me braver.
0: I really like that answer. I'm wondering also as it has now made its way into the world and as readers are starting to respond to it, I wonder if there have been some responses that have particularly touched you.
1: Oh, my gosh. It's so funny you should ask the question because I was just thinking this morning when I did Shift Network talk this summer, there was a person who put in the chat, I'm crying. I'm gay. And Brother Lawrence and God as they themselves theirs, I feel so seen. I've had so many people. And then I've had another person say to me who was 70 something, my granddaughter is trans. And oh my God, I feel she's so seen. So I've had these moments. And then I've had other people say, wow you really took a risk and this is exciting. And the other thing is Walter Brugeman and some others who I consider pillars of the world were like, we like this translation. I'm like, things can change. Not that Walter Brugeman he's great. But what I'm saying is like, there's this shaking going on in the world that please God, let it be birth and please help us to get everybody through it as kindly as possible. So it's been overwhelmingly positive for the they. And I didn't even make that decision. I just chose to be open to it. I feel more comfortable with it too, though. I did have Cassidy Hall at Countering Silence said, I really like that you feel more comfortable with it. And you're kind of like a traditional person. I how she put it, but you're just kind of like, but yeah, couldn't we have more openness? That's what I've gotten from people is this is a much more open, approach. So I'm just really grateful for it. It's been a joy to me, really.
0: Well, Dr. Carmen Acevedo-Butcher, I am so grateful that you took the time to work with this text and to bring it into language and into possibility that was always there, but maybe had been covered over a bit by other translations. Thank you so much for your openness to the Spirit and to those nudges that clearly are bringing fruit, but thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners.
1: Thank you very much, David. It's been a real honor to be here.
0: We've been speaking today with Carmen Acevedo-Butcher. She is an author, teacher, poet, and award-winning translator of spiritual texts. Her dynamic work around the evolution of language and the necessity of just and inclusive language has garnered interest from various media, including the BBC and NPR's Morning Edition. We've been speaking today about her recent translation of Brother Lawrence's Practice of the Presence, a revolutionary translation of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com notseenradio